All right, go ahead and open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 3 to start. Um, and this morning we begin a six-week study of the doctrine of the Christian Sabbath. Now, before we dive in, let's start with a definition. What is the Sabbath? We're going to talk about it, right? We should define it first. What is the Sabbath? The Sabbath is one day in seven of God's choosing to be wholly dedicated to his worship. One day in seven where we are to set aside all ordinary labors, works of necessity and mercy accepted, and set aside all worldly recreations in order to devote the whole day to worshiping God. Let me say it again. In order to worship the Lord the whole day, we set aside our ordinary labor and recreation. One day in seven, we are to cease from our worldly thoughts, words, works, pleasures, and employments, though legitimate on other days of the week, so that we can give ourselves over to worshiping God in public and private the whole day. And that day from the beginning of the creation until the resurrection of Christ was the seventh day of the week, but from the resurrection of Christ to the end of the world has been changed to the first day of the week. Um, just so you know, in our Confession of Faith, I believe it's chapter 22, paragraph 7 and 8 that I just paraphrased very heavily. So you can go there and, and, and read that later. But what I just said sounds like a lot of nonsense in the ears of most modern Christians. I know that it did for me until a few years ago. But the more that I, I read our forefathers and the faith and the more that I searched the scriptures, the more I realized that this doctrine is indeed biblical. And I hope to show that to you uh, in the coming weeks starting today. Uh, but a, a six-week study of the doctrine of the Sabbath probably to some seems to be a bit lengthy. Um, and that's probably because this doctrine is one that many are unfamiliar with. And, and, and so they think, why, why is this important? Or, or maybe, they, you, maybe you're sitting here and you, and you reject that doctrine. And you say, well, why do I want to sit here for six weeks and, and have someone talk to me about the Christian Sabbath? So allow me to give a, a defense for this series. As an elder over this congregation, my job is to shepherd the flock of God that makes up this church. And a huge part of that job is to teach the sheep. In fact, the Apostle Paul tells elders in Titus 1.9 that we are to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So I am to teach sound doctrine and I am to rebuke, or that word is sometimes translated refute, or I prefer uh, what the King James says, convince the gainsayers, convince those who contradict sound doctrine. That is, part of my job is to help those who are in error come to see, understand, and gladly embrace what God has revealed in his word. And that job extends both to Christians and unbelievers. And I mean this with all warmth and affection for each one of you that I hope that I've proved over the last eight years. I love you. But there are many in this congregation who are in error about the doctrine of the Christian Sabbath. Now, it's no secret that only a little less than a quarter of the members of this congregation currently embrace our confession's teaching on the Sabbath. This, this was known by the elders when you all voted to receive the 1689 as the teaching standard for this church. And we told you that we would make it one of our goals to patiently, gently, and consistently teach and guide you all to embrace this doctrine. And you all agreed to, to be taught this doctrine and also to have private conversations about it 
with a good disposition towards your elders. And now we've decided that it's appropriate to take an extended bit of time to flesh this doctrine out from the pulpit. In keeping with the mandate given to elders, my goal is to teach sound doctrine about the Sabbath, refute error, and convince you all to embrace it and obey it. I believe that Sabbath keeping is one of the big areas of our church's life that needs tending to. When I think of this church, I think of many, many great things. There, there's no other congregation that I would rather pastor. Uh, I talk to some of my pastor friends even inside of county, and I think, yikes, I don't want to pastor your church. <laughs> and that doesn't mean I'm not saying there's not Christians in those churches, but just like, nope, that's for you, not for me, thanks. I think of many, many good things about this con congregation, and I am grateful to pastor such a good and devout body of brothers and sisters. But when I think of things that need changed, things that need further reformation in the life of this church, and you can think just eight years ago how much reformation has taken place, things that need further reformed, the first thing that often comes to mind is that most do not view the fourth commandment as binding on Christians. And though maybe you wouldn't say that, this is evidenced in how many of you spend the Lord's Day after the worship service, going to restaurants, doing business, working, watching sports, things like that. And that's a pretty big error. In fact, it's sin. Spending the day in such things is not keeping the Sabbath holy as the fourth commandment teaches us to. And so I plan to prove to you over the next six weeks that the Lord's Day is to be kept as the Christian Sabbath. Now, let me be clear Please don't misunderstand me. My intention is not to berate or belittle or do any such thing with this series. Far be it from me uh, to beat on the people of God. Rather, my intention is to educate you in the word of God, reveal the sin of Sabbath breaking, and graciously call you to repent and keep the Lord's day holy. That's my goal. But this doctrine has fallen on hard times, has it not? Me and Pastor Stephen were talking, I was reading a book, um, and I, I, it was a, a hymnal that was published in the mid-1800s. Out of like 500 hymns in it, 40 of them were about the Sabbath. And then that hymnal got republished in the early 20th centuries, and it was about 15 songs about the Sabbath. And then it got republished again further on in the, in the 20th century, and there were two. This doctrine has fallen on hard times. Most Christians have no idea that there is an entire day each week that is to be dedicated to the Lord. Because of dispensationalism and other errors that have crept into the church in the last 150 years, the doctrine of the Christian Sabbath is all but gone in evangelicalism. But it didn't used to be that way. Did you know that all, pro all major Protestant groups used to believe and teach that there is a Sabbath day for Christians? As a historical fact... But today, hardly anyone keeps the Lord's Day holy aside from going to church for a few hours. And so I hope to remedy ignorance among this congregation. I don't mean that in a, in, a, in a mean way, but people just don't know. I hope to instruct you so that you will understand more clearly your duty to God with regard to the Lord's Day. But this also must be said. For some, not keeping the Lord's Day is a matter of ignorance. I know that was me. For others... It's a matter of prejudice. So in the words of Robert P. Martin, brothers and sisters, beware your own prejudices. Many simply won't accept this doctrine because they understand that it has implications for how they must live. For many Christians, rejecting the Christian Sabbath is not a matter of methods of biblical interpretation or a system of doctrine. 
For many, it's not biblical or intellectual. For many, it's a heart issue. They don't want to accept this doctrine because they want to treat the Lord's Day as an extra Saturday. I heard one preacher, and he was being pretty funny. He said, uh, he said some Christians come to the text with uh, the gridiron method of interpretation. And he had me. I was like, what is the gridiron method of interpretation? He said, any interpretation of the Sabbath that means I can't watch football on Sunday must be incorrect. And I thought that was just a really good joke. But anyway, for many, it is a heart issue. Many reject this doctrine because they simply don't want to give God a whole day, but they think that a few hours is more than enough for the Lord. And listen, I want to be clear. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that that's everyone in this room. But it is true for many Christians that I've interacted with on this issue. For many, it's less an issue of doctrine and more an issue of simply not wanting to keep a day holy to the Lord. Many people bristle at the idea that God would tell them to lay down their worldly pleasures for a whole day and give themselves over to worship simply because they'd rather spend the day in work or recreation. So again, I beg you, and this ain't going to be the last time you hear me say this, I beg you, beware your own prejudices. But today we're going to begin at the beginning. We will consider that God instituted the Sabbath at creation on the first seventh day of the week. We will begin at the beginning to see that the Sabbath is a creation ordinance. Now, why is this important for us to do? Why do you need to see that the Sabbath is a creation ordinance? Pay attention. Many claim that the Sabbath was only given to Jews at Sinai under the Mosaic Covenant. That's what many claim. That's what I used to claim. And if that is true, if it's true, then the Sabbath command ceased to be binding the moment that the Mosaic Covenant ended. That is, when Jesus instituted the new covenant at his death. Therefore, if the Sabbath was given only to the Jews under the Mosaic Covenant, then it is no longer binding on Christians living under the new covenant. Simple enough. But, if the Sabbath existed and was given prior to the Mosaic Covenant if it was given at creation, then the Sabbath is not tied to any particular covenant because there were not any with men yet, but is binding on all men at all times. If the Sabbath was given at creation, then it is for all mankind to observe because it was given to mankind's first father, Adam, and not just for the Jews under the Mosaic Covenant. The principle of one day in seven of God's choosing to be devoted totally to him is binding on all men if it began at creation. So then, my dear brothers and sisters, know that this sermon is very important for all of us. This sermon's foundational. This sermon's going to be a little bit longer maybe than the other ones too. If the Sabbath began at creation, then everyone is obligated to keep the Sabbath holy. Now, the day change from the seventh to the first day of the week will still have to be proven. That's for another sermon. But nevertheless, the Sabbath as a principle and command will be proven to be binding on all of us if I can prove that it began at creation. And I plan to prove that from the word of God this morning. So may God bless the preaching of his word. And with that said, if you would and are able, please stand with me now for the reading of the inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of God. Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done. 
and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It's it's a treasure to your people, and we listen to it in order to hear from you. And so we ask now that by your Holy Spirit, you would teach us your word. Make us receptive to it. Remove our prejudices. Make us teachable. Help us to receive the truth. Help us, teach us to obey you out of love and holy reverence. Help us to submit to your word out of gratitude for what you have done in Christ to save us from hell. Make us teachable this morning. And glorify yourself in us as we humble ourselves before your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. The verses we just read come at the end of the creation account. In Genesis chapter 1, we read about how God created the world and everything in it in six days. And then in Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, we read about what God did on the seventh day. We're told in verse 2 that God, having finished all his work of creation, rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. Now, the, the word there for rested is the Hebrew word from which we get the word Sabbath, right? So this text is relevant to the conversation about Sabbath. So we read more literally that God Sabbathed on the seven, seventh day. And then, having ceased or Sabbathed from his work of creation, we read again, verse 3, So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God had rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Brothers and sisters, this passage is almost self-evident. Sometimes when I, when I preach, I have, to, I have to comment on passages, and it's like I kind of don't know what to say because it's there. This passage is almost self-evident. The most plain and natural way to read this text is to understand that on the seventh day of the world's existence, God ceased from his work of creation and blessed and sanctified that same day. In other words, on the seventh day, God Sabbathed himself and created the Sabbath day. I don't want to insult your intelligence, but I, I do have to go through this a little bit slowly. I want you to see this. When did God do this? When did he do this? At what point in history did God take a day and bless it and make it holy? Our text answers with ridiculous clarity and simplicity. On the seventh day. On the seventh day of the world's existence, as God's final creative act, having made the world and everything in it, God rested and made the day that he rested a special day. A holy day. I am convinced that if it were not for anti-Sabbatarian sentiment, nobody would even think to argue that this text teaches otherwise. It's what it says. To dispute that God created the Sabbath day on the seventh day of the world is to make this passage, I think, unintelligible. If it doesn't mean that, I don't know what it means. But, but let's flesh out what God did on the seventh day. Verse 3 says that God blessed the day. That is, he, he tied a blessing to the day. He put his favor upon it in some peculiar way. Now, when God blesses something, as we see him blessing animals in Genesis chapter 1, he gives it some kind of benefit or enables it to do some kind of good. That's what happens when God blesses something. 
Now, for whom did God put a blessing on the day? Surely it wasn't for the day, right? Like that's, that's kind of nonsense, right? A day is a, more of a concept and therefore cannot benefit from anything. A day is not a person. A day is not a being. So God didn't bless the day for the day. And surely it wasn't for himself. Does God need a blessing? Our God who is of himself, God needs nothing, right? So he needs no blessing. He needs no benefit. No, God put blessing on the day as we will see our Lord Jesus Christ affirm for his creatures. That is for man. So here in verse 3, we read that God has tied to this day blessing for human beings. And then we read that God made it holy. I, I think this is incredibly important. This was a game changer for me. I'd never paid attention to this. God made the day holy. Or to put it another way, some translations, he sanctified the day. This is wildly important. In nearly every use of the word sanctify or make holy in the Bible, God is sovereignly setting apart a person, place, or thing for special use to him. Specifically, when God sanctifies something, he sets it apart to be used for his worship. We read that God sanctified priests. God sanctified the tabernacle. He sanctified the temple. He sanctified the altars. He sanctified the incense. Sanctified days of worship. Many other things in the Old Testament and the New Testament. We read that God sanctified his people. He set us apart. Time and time again. This means that God set apart those people and things for his worship. He makes things holy so that they are then devoted completely to him. You can't use them for anything else now. They're his. You use them only for worshiping him. And here we read that on the seventh day of the world, God sanctified the day. He made it holy. So we should understand that God set the day apart for himself and for his worship. Now, all days belong to the Lord in a generic sense, right? All days belong, why? Because he created them. He's the Lord of time and creator of all days. But in another sense, God has declared one day in seven to belong to him in a special way that the other days do not. Also, just real quick, and I'm getting ahead of myself, read Revelation 1.10 sometime. The day that we meet on is called the Lord's Day. Just throwing that out there. And when God sets apart something, Again, when he does something like this, like declaring one day in seven to belong to him, he sets it apart for worship. So I think we can already see how the doctrine of the Sabbath is taking shape. God tied his special blessing on a day that he set aside and reserved for his worship. And again, he did this at creation. Lastly, we see by implication that God gave an example to mankind in our text. God gave an example to man. Having worked six days, God rested or Sabbathed from his work of creation on the seventh day. Just real quick, do you see that God created the week here? He created the week. There is no eighth day. There were six days of work followed by a seventh day of rest. Our God, by his own example, because of what he did, he created the week as we know it. And real quick thing, if you read any books on the Christian Sabbath, I always I found this just really, really interesting. Apart from God's example to give us a seven-day week, did you know there is no reason to have a seven-day week? Like the months make sense, lunar calendar, all that, right? The year makes sense, the sun revolving around, or, or the earth going around the sun, all that stuff. That makes sense. But there's no 
like logical reason that we can deduce why a week is seven days. Why do we divide time into periods of seven? Biblically, I can tell you why. It's because God made the week by his actions. God set an example for man for how to count time and what to do with that time. And I say that God did this as an example for man because there is no other explanation for why God created the way that he did. What do I mean? Well, we know that God could have spoken all things into existence in one moment. Does anyone dispute that? The omnipotent God could have spoke everything into existence in one moment, but that's not what he did. Instead, he, I mean, really, if you think about what omnipotence can do, he really creeped along, taking six days to make everything. He took his time. He took six days to do all his work and then rested on the seventh. Does that sound familiar to anyone? Now, you tell me. Why else did God do this other than to give an example to mankind? An example that mankind ought to imitate. Again, he did not have to take six days to do this, but he did. And since God does not grow weary, he did not have to rest like human beings do. He wasn't wore out. But nevertheless, God had it recorded in Scripture for his people that he worked six days and then rested one. It was not for his benefit that he had his actions recorded, is it? He knows what he did. It's not for his benefit that he had this recorded. Rather, it's for the sake of man that it has been revealed that God did these things. It's to set us an example and show us the rhythm for life. And it's a good rhythm. Work six days, devote one day to the Lord. Repeat. That's a good pattern. So we see already in Genesis chapter 2 that God chose a day and put a blessing on it. God set that same day apart for his worship. Again, he sanctified it. God set an example for man for how our time is to be used and divided. And God did all of these things on the seventh day of the world's existence. In other words, my dear brothers and sisters, God created the Sabbath day at creation. And therefore, the Sabbath day is not tied to the Jews or the Mosaic Covenant because it was instituted before there were any Jews or covenants with man at all. We're not done. If you thought you were getting out of here in 20 minutes, guess again. <laughs> now, it's at this point that some will say this. And this, right, people will say this to what I've just said. But where is the command to keep the day in Genesis chapter 2? Where's the command? If God made the Sabbath at creation and he expects man to keep the Sabbath, then where is the commandment for mankind to keep it? People ask that question because they argue if there is no command to keep the Sabbath, then there was no Sabbath instituted at creation. That's a fair question. No, that's for real. That's a fair question. And there are multiple answers. First, I like this. Thank you, Sam Waldron. By the way, none of this is original to me. I can give you a stack of books that, you, that if you read those books, you already know what I'm going to say before I say it. None of this is original to me. First, God's example implies a command. Man is made in the image of God. And being made in God's image means, <clears throat> among other things, that we have been created to be like him. To be like him in whatever ways that we can as finite created beings. God created us to image forth to the world what he is like and what is important to him. So then, whatever we see God doing in as much as we can, we are to do likewise. And we see in Genesis 2 that God himself worked six days and then ceased from his work on the seventh. 
Now, surely, again, I'm, I, I've hit this already, but God did not give us an example for no reason. Right? He, he didn't do this to benefit himself. As I've said already, God worked and rested to give us an example. And as his image bearers, we are to imitate his example. And listen, you already know this. You already know this. Please don't argue with this. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48, that we are to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Why? Because God makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. What's Jesus telling you to do? Imitate what your God does. Imitate him. In Ephesians 4.32, the Apostle Paul tells us that we must be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Why, Paul? Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. What's he saying? What did God do? Well, he forgave me in Christ. Okay, do it then. Do likewise is what the apostle's saying here. As image bearers and especially as God's redeemed people, we are to imitate our God and Father. So then, if we see God working six days and then resting the seventh, what are we obligated to do? Imitate him. And that is exactly what we see in Genesis chapter 2. God's example to his image bearers carries the weight and force of an explicit command. Just as a father who gives an example to his son expects his son to do likewise, and I know you dads, I know that's, here's how you cut the grass. What do you expect him to do? Do what you did. In the same way, God expects his image bearers to imitate him. But to this you might ask, and this is another fair question, but how did Adam know? How did Adam know? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly. But it's not unreasonable, as many old theologians believed. It's not unreasonable to think that God may have verbally told him, I worked six days and then I rested the seventh, you do the same. It's possible. It's a bit of speculation. But let's not discount the fact that Adam was made on what day? Day six. When did God make the Sabbath? Day seven. Considering the intimate and immediate fellowship, immediate fellowship that Adam had with God prior to the fall, Adam would have known what God's actions were on the seventh day. And with that knowledge and without a sin nature to cloud his thinking in his heart, Adam would have known to imitate what he saw God doing on the seventh day. I don't think that that is a stretch at all. A second way that we can see God commanding the Sabbath to be kept in Genesis 2, I like this. It's in the fact that God sanctified the day. If God makes something holy, man has to keep it holy. Ask Uzzah. The ark is holy. Don't touch it. He touched it. He died. If God makes something holy, man must keep it holy. Man must use that holy thing as God would have him, period. Man is never, ever permitted to profane that which God has made holy unless it is somehow later rendered common by God. Are you allowed to treat this bread and wine on this table as if it's common bread and wine? Not when we're taking the Lord's Supper. Why? Because it's sanctified when we're taking the Lord's Supper. You're not allowed to profane holy things. Are you allowed to despise the waters of baptism? No. Why? Because when they're being used for baptism, they become holy. We are not allowed to profane holy things. So, by God making the day holy, a command is functionally given to man to keep it holy. 
So when God sanctified the day, he set it apart for himself and implicitly commands Adam and all mankind to do what he did, keep it holy. Third, I want to point this out to you. You know, we actually have another example of, in Genesis 2 of a command being given without a record of a verbal command. This is interesting. So let me, let me repeat that. There's an example in Genesis 2 that we all accept where God gives a command without making it verbally known. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 22 through 25, God instituted marriage by giving Eve to Adam. And in doing so, a commandment came into force by implication of the institution of marriage. What commandment was that? The commandment for monogamous, heterosexual, lifelong marriage. You say, well, how do we know that that command came into being when marriage was given? Well, because Jesus said so. And because Moses said so. In Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 through 6, Jesus says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. What's Jesus saying? He's saying when God gave marriage, the command to not divorce was also given. God made the two one. Don't separate them. Jesus says that command is implied there. Likewise, when God gave one woman to one man, the command for monogamy was set. Likewise, when God put a man and woman together and made them one, the command for heterosexuality was set. Is there any command for those things in that text? Nope, just the institution of marriage. The commands are implied. That's what Jesus supposes. So again, if God institutes something, commands are implied even without record of an explicit verbal command. Now, keeping on track with the goal of seeing that the Sabbath was instituted at creation, I want us to turn now to Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. That is the fourth commandment itself. The fourth commandment itself, the Sabbath command. And as we read it, we're going to see that the commandment itself teaches that God created the Sabbath at creation. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. The fourth commandment, as it was given at Mount Sinai, is explicitly rooted not in the exodus from Egypt, but in what God did at creation. Now, where do we see that? Consider verse 11 again. There, after giving the command to keep the Sabbath holy, God himself gives an explanatory clause. God gives the reason why we should keep the Sabbath. Verse 11 begins with the word for. That's an explanatory word. It means because. So the reason for the commandment to keep the Sabbath holy is this. Verse 11. For, or because... In six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. 
Brothers and sisters, God himself tells us that we should keep the Sabbath because of what he did back in Genesis 2. Because of what he did at creation. Again, I know I'm laboring the point a bit. It was at creation that God Sabbathed and made the Sabbath day. This is a serious thing that you need to consider if you think the Sabbath was only given to the Jews under the Mosaic Covenant. Does, the, does this commandment look back at the Exodus or creation? It looks back at creation. And the commandment does not say that at Sinai, God was then making the Sabbath day. It's not what it says. It says that God made the Sabbath on the seventh day of the world's existence. Notice, notice that this is all in past tense language. Verse 11. The Lord made, past tense. He rested on the seventh day, past tense. He blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. This is all past tense. The text does not say that God was making or blessing the Sabbath that day in Exodus 20. Rather, the command is rooted in what God did prior to Sinai, prior to the Exodus from Egypt. It's because of what God did at creation that we are to keep the Sabbath. Again, brothers and sisters, God made the Sabbath at creation. The creation account itself says this. The fourth commandment itself says this. God himself tells us that this command is not tied to the Mosaic Covenant, but has existed since creation. And you know, Jesus himself affirms this. Jesus himself affirms that the Sabbath has existed since creation. Please turn to Mark chapter 2. Gospel of Mark chapter 2, verses 27 and 28. In the context here, our Lord is talking with the Pharisees about whether or not it's right to heal on the Sabbath. He healed a guy in front of them. They got angry. And now a discussion ensues. You see, the Pharisees had all kinds of man-made rules about Sabbath keeping that absolutely were not found in the Scriptures. And with all their rules, I mean hundreds of rules about the Sabbath, they sucked all the joy and blessing out of the day. They made the day so much of a burden that our Lord had to often correct their teaching on the day. And one of their rules was, don't heal on the Sabbath. Like, don't practice medicine and stuff, which is actually funny because Jesus still didn't really break their rules because all he told the guy was, stretch forth your hand. Not against the Pharisees' rule for a guy to stretch forth his hand. I like that. It makes me laugh. But nevertheless, Jesus healed the man on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees get upset with him. So Jesus begins to teach, to correct their view on the Sabbath. And in Mark 2, 27 through 28, we read Jesus' own words about the Sabbath. There he says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. I think this is a very powerful text. It had a great impact on my thinking about the Lord's Day, about the Christian Sabbath. Here Jesus is talking about the institution and purpose of the Sabbath day. So this is very relevant to our topic this morning. And here Jesus says, the Sabbath was made. The Sabbath was made. He's, what, what's he doing? He's talking about the creation of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made. And right after that is a reference to what? The making of man. Not man for the Sabbath. So the Sabbath was made. He's talking about the creation of the Sabbath and the creation of man. It's interesting to note that the language used here is also used in the Septuagint. That's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. 
The same kind of language Jesus is using here is used in the Septuagint in Genesis chapter 2. Jesus seems to be pointing us back to the beginning of mankind and the beginning of the Sabbath in order to clarify the purpose of the Sabbath. In other words, when Jesus wants to talk about the Sabbath and why it exists, he points us back to creation. And Jesus tells us that the Sabbath was made for man. I love this text. It was made for man. The Sabbath was made for the benefit of man. It was made to be a blessing for man. The Sabbath day was never meant or made to be a burden for man. And it is not a burden for man. What does John say in 1 John? His commandments are not burdensome. It was never meant to be a burden. The man-made rules of the Pharisees were a horrible burden on people. They made the Sabbath day a day of suffering and joylessness for anyone who listened to them. But that was not God's intention when he created the Sabbath. God made it for the good of man. God made it to be a blessing for man. Anyone in here who's a Sabbatarian will, tell, will testify to this. The day is good. It is good to keep the Lord's day holy. It is a blessing to your soul and your body secondarily. It is good God made it to be a day where men could rest their bodies from their ordinary work and spend the day with Him, being spiritually blessed and nourished as they worship and fellowship with God. Is anything a, be a better blessing than that? That God would tell you one day in seven, me and you, all day. That's a blessing. Brothers and sisters, the Sabbath was made for our good. Properly observed, laying aside man-made rules and regulations, a day devoted to rest and worship is one of the greatest blessings that God ever gave to man. Christ is the greatest. The Sabbath is one of the greatest. So again, the Sabbath is made to be a blessing. And does that fit with what we've seen already? Genesis 2-3, he blessed the day. He blessed the day. And when did he do that? At creation. The Pharisees made the day horrible. But Jesus says that from creation, God made it to be good and a blessing. And it's interesting to note something else about Mark 2.27. The Greek here, literally it says the Sabbath was made for the man. The definite article is used there. The man. Guess what Adam is called in Genesis 1 and 2? The man. The man. And Adam, the man, is the father of all mankind, for we all come from him. So if the Sabbath was made for the man, Adam, then it was given to man in general, mankind. What does Jesus say? The Sabbath was made for man. The Sabbath was made for man. And that fits well with the Sabbath as a creation ordinance. Made for man. Jesus doesn't say the Sabbath was made for the Jews. He says it was made for mankind. And how does Jesus know that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath? How does he know that? And how does he expect his hearers to understand that? Because of the order of creation. Because of the order of creation. One, that God blessed the day. Second, by the, by the very order of creation. Man was made on day six. The Sabbath was made for man on day seven. 
The order of creation here. Man first, Sabbath second. What does that mean? The Sabbath was made for man and not the other way around. By the way, if you think the order of creation isn't that important, read 1 Corinthians 11 again. Read 2 Timothy 2 again. The order of creation is very important. The Sabbath was made to be a gift to man. The man was not given to the Sabbath. The Sabbath was given to him. It's a gift and a blessing, and Jesus here is restoring its original use and intent. Jesus declares he is Lord of the Sabbath. That doesn't mean he's destroying the day. It means I'm able to clear away the nonsense that the Pharisees have put on God's day and tell you what God meant it to be for you. This way of reading the text makes the most sense. And that means that Jesus is telling us that the Sabbath is instituted at creation, given to mankind, and was given as a gift and blessing for each one of us. Now, please, pay attention to what comes next. This next part of the sermon is going to tie everything together and show why this matters for you. That's what we're after, right? Like, so what? Why is it so important that we understand that the Sabbath was first instituted and given at creation? Why is it crucial for us to understand that the Sabbath is a creation ordinance and not something given to the Jews alone through Moses? Here's your answer. Because the New Testament argues from creation ordinances to establish principles and commands that Christians must accept and obey. Let me say that again. The New Testament argues from things instituted at creation in order to establish principles and commands that Christians must accept and obey. Let me give you some examples of this. Example number one, marriage. As we have already seen in Jesus' words in Matthew 19, marriage is to be lifelong, heterosexual, and monogamous. Our Lord Jesus argued from what God did at creation when he gave Eve to Adam as a wife. Marriage was instituted at creation, and because God did that, Lifelong, heterosexual, monogamous marriage was given to mankind. Does anyone in here believe that marriage is only for the Jews? I didn't think so. I did not think so. Marriage, being something instituted at creation, is therefore not tied to any particular covenant, but was given to mankind. So then, what is given and instituted at creation is normative and binding for everyone. Let me give you another example. Labor. Labor. A lot of people think we only work because, like, sin entered into the world. Not true. The principle that men are to work exists for everyone, right? It exists for Christians as well as Jews. No one would say that work is only for the Jews. We all work. There are commands in the New Testament that tell us that we are to each work and provide for our families. If a man will not do that, he is worse than an unbeliever. We're told that we are to work as if working for the Lord. We're told that the man who will not work shall not eat. We're commanded to work. But why? Why why are we expected to work? Genesis 2.15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. God instituted labor at creation before the fall. So work, labor, is a creation ordinance. God made man to work. And so we all must work. And none of us, again, would argue that only Jews had to work under the Old Covenant. And why is that? 
We know that's not true because God gave labor to man in the beginning. So again, we see another creation ordinance, labor, being normative and binding on all men. A third example, we're not done. A third example, male headship in the church. This is the one that got me, brothers and sisters. This is the one that got me. I've argued for male headship over and over again from the text I'm about to read, 1 Timothy 2.12. And when I had a Sabbatarian point out to me, oh, are you arguing from a creation ordinance? I was toast. I was done. 1 Timothy 2.12. The apostle says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. This is one of the texts that we turn to in order to establish the principle that only men are permitted to hold office in the church. The Apostle Paul says that he did not allow women to teach or hold authority over men. And so we follow the teaching of the Apostle. But have you ever considered why Paul said that? Lots of people stop at, at, at 2 Timothy 2.12. Why did Paul say that? Well, you don't have to wonder for very long because in the next verse, Paul tells you why. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. One of the reasons that the apostle gives for the command against women having church authority is rooted in creation. It's actually rooted in the order of creation, similar to how Jesus argued in Mark 2. God made Adam and then God made Eve. So then Adam ranks before Eve. And Paul takes this truth to imply that since Adam is before Eve, men are not to be under the authority of women. Rather, women are to be under the authority of men. Once again, we see what God did at creation coming to bear on Christian ethics and practice. God instituted male headship at creation, and so male headship must continue. Once again, a creation ordinance is normative and binding on Christians. Now, what have we seen throughout this sermon? We've seen that the Sabbath, like marriage, labor, and male headship, was given at creation. So then, please hear me, to be consistent with how the New Testament argues from creation ordinances, we must admit that if the Sabbath was instituted at creation, then it has not gone away. Has marriage gone away? Has labor gone away? Has male headship gone away? Absolutely not. So then if the Sabbath was instituted at creation, it cannot have gone away. And my dear brothers and sisters, the Sabbath was instituted at creation. And so the Sabbath remains binding on every one of us today. Now, as I said in the introduction, the change of day from Saturday to Sunday is a separate matter for another sermon. But know this, this principle that we see at creation, that we are to work six days and then devote one day to God, simply has not gone away. Please hear me. To say that something instituted at creation is irrelevant to us today is to deny the argumentation of the divinely inspired apostles. And we can't do that. If you do that, you have to give up everything else the apostles argue for from creation in the New Testament. We can't do that. So then, my brothers and sisters, you must accept that there is still a Sabbath for Christians. So in summary, we've seen, one, Genesis chapter 2 verses 1 through 3 is a history telling us that God made the Sabbath at creation. Two, the fourth commandment asserts that the Sabbath began at creation. 
3, the Lord Jesus Christ affirms that the Sabbath was given to mankind at creation and is for our blessing. Fourth, the New Testament teaches that those things instituted at creation are binding on Christians and all men. Fifth, therefore, the Sabbath continues for Christians today. After six days of labor and doing all our own work and pleasure, a whole seventh day of God's choosing, which is the first day of the week under the new covenant, today, the Lord's day, belongs to him for worship. Robert P. Martin, in his fantastic book on the Christian Sabbath, wrote this. Before there was an Israel, or a Moses, or tablets of stone at Sinai, God established the Sabbath at creation. He did the same with the ordinances of marriage and procreation and labor. We rightly assume the perpetuity of these ordinances. Should we not assume the perpetuity of the Sabbath since it rests on the same creation foundation? The answer is yes, we should. So brothers and sisters, before we end our time considering the Sabbath this morning, let me call you to action. Let me call you to action. First, imitate your God. Imitate your God. He gave you an example. Imitate him. He worked six days and then rested. Again, though the day has changed because of the resurrection of Christ, the obligation remains the same. Please hear me. You are duty-bound as an image bearer, to do what your God did. You are duty-bound to imitate his example. You were created to be like him as much as you can. So be like him. Do what he did in the beginning and keep the Sabbath. Rest from your work and your worldly recreations and give the day to him. Will you have questions? Undoubtedly. Do I hope to get to them in the very last sermon of the series? I hope so. Will you have questions? What about this? Is this permissible? Is that? Listen, we live by principles. I won't give you a big list of, of rules. I'm not a Pharisee. Will you have questions? Sure. But the questions don't negate the fact that you are duty-bound to imitate God. Be like Him and keep the Sabbath. This is what you were made to do. You were made to imitate Him. So fulfill your purpose and imitate Him. You already imitate Him in so many other ways you strive to. Strive to imitate Him in this way as well. And second, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you the Sabbath is God's gift to you. So keep it. Genesis 2 says he blessed the day. Our Lord tells us that the Sabbath was made for us as a gift for you. So take the blessing that God offers you and keep the day. Oh, please hear me. One day to spend with God, unhindered by work or worldly recreation, is a great thing. To our flesh, it does not sound like a great thing. But it is a great thing. It's more of a blessing than any of us, even the most devout Sabbatarian in this room, it's more of a blessing than any of us realize. God will make us delight more and more in Him. Read Isaiah 58. He'll make us delight more and more in Him the more we spend the day with Him. He will feed us with Himself. He'll feed our souls. He'll use the day to strengthen us for the week ahead if we use it properly. Brothers and sisters, take the day. Take the blessing that He offers you. And please consider this as well. Jesus Christ is the Lord of the Sabbath. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. He Himself has told you that the day was made for you. 
follow me on this. Surely, surely the Lord Jesus would never give you an example or commandment that is not good for you. I'll please let that sink in. Surely, Jesus would not give you a commandment that is not good for you. He loves you entirely too much to do that. He would never call you to keep the Sabbath unless it was for your good. He would never lie and tell you that something was made to bless you if it wasn't. He loves you. The Lord loves you. He died for your sins. He suffered the wrath of God on your behalf. He rose from the dead for your justification. He has saved your soul and promises you, what are we all striving for? An eternal Sabbath with Him. He loves you. So trust Him. You trust Him with your salvation. You trust Him with your soul. So trust Him with the Sabbath. Trust Him with one-seventh of your time. You trust Him with everything else. This is nothing. Trust Him. Trust Him and be blessed as you keep His day. May God help us all to see the goodness of God to give us the Sabbath. And seeing, may we gladly keep it and obey the Lord of the Sabbath, the lover of our souls, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you as always for your word. Your word is truth. It sanctifies us as you use your spirit to apply it to our hearts. God, it, it's by faith that we obey you. Lord, would you help us to trust you on this matter? To believe that you know what's best for us? To believe that the Sabbath is for our good? To believe that it's a gift? Help us to, by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, keep the day. Have mercy on us and teach us to glorify you more with how we spend our Lord's day. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.